0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Obesity as a Chronic Disease, Practicing What We Preach to Overcome Stigma and Inspire Change. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash pzm860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available.
1: Hello, this is Dr. Troy Donahue. I'm a professor at the University of Florida College of Medicine and Chief of the Division of Endocrinology, Diabetes, and Metabolism. Joining to me today is Dr. Amy Scheer, an Assistant Professor of Medicine in the Division of Internal Medicine, also at the University of Florida College of Medicine in Gainesville.
2: Thank you, Dr. Donahue. It's great to be here.
1: In today's presentation, we'll discuss communication strategies to help patients understand obesity as a chronic yet treatable disease, not a personal failure. We'll compare the current and emerging anti-obesity medications so you can help your patients safely lose weight and prevent regain. And we'll help you engage your patients in shared decision-making to co-create individualized weight loss plans that are achievable, realistic, and incorporate long-term anti-obesity medications. So let's start with the problem of obesity. And as you can see from these often used slides, um, obesity is still rising in prevalence and is very prevalent. So that um, the the slide on the left from the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System um, shows the places, uh, the darker the color, the more prevalent the obesity. Um, And you can see that certain states, especially in the Southeast, have a much higher prevalence of obesity um, than some of the states, for example, in the West. Um, The graph on the right shows the prevalence of obesity over the years. So in the last 20-plus years, coming up on 20 years, we've gone from a prevalence of about 1 in 3 or 30 percent to now 42 percent having a BMI over 30 um, and even more striking, we doubled the number of people who have a BMI over 40 or severe obesity from 4.7 to 9.2%. So we use BMI as a marker for obesity, but really how reliable is it? Well, as you probably have heard, we use healthy weight as a BMI of uh, 18 to 25, overweight 25 to 30, class 1 30 to 35, class 2 35 to 40, and class 3 above a BMI of 40. Um, it's a very good estimate of body fat for the general population. Um, there's a lot of discussion, BMI has gotten beat up a lot over the last year or so. Um, because it it isn't perfect, There may be better cut points, um, more appropriate for sex, race, ethnicity, and menopausal status. Um, uh, Certain uh, race and ethnic groups, like Asians, um, could be obese with a BMI, what's considered a healthy weight range for others, a BMI of 23 or so. Um, And among postmenopausal women, BMI could really underestimate body fat. Uh, as well as the other extreme retired uh, athletes, such as NFL players, BMI overestimates body fat. Um, The body fat measurement, through largely research tools like DEXA, the same thing we do to get bone density, is a much more accurate measure of obesity, um, but still uh, not necessarily needed. So how... Did we decide about these categories, um, and and they do link for a population very well to um, to mortality. This slide specifically is is risk of cardiovascular disease and uh, stratified by underweight, normal weight, overweight, obese, and morbidly obese. Um, and you can see as you could go as you go up in in category with both men and women, that um, the risk of uh, cardiovascular mortality increases as BMI increases. So what are the complications? And, and uh, this is probably a side that uh, you've seen a similar version of in the past. Um, there's uh, both metabolic and um, non-metabolic as well as anatomical uh, complications related to obesity, um, and virtually every organ system is is affected by obesity. So everything from pulmonary disease, the usual sleep apnea, but also obesity hypoventilation syndrome, to um, the liver with uh, NAFLD, steatohepatitis, becoming the most common reason for uh, liver transplant is, is, um, is NASH cirrhosis um, and gallbladder disease, uh, GYN ab- uh, abnormalities, including PCOS that we'll be talking about more later, and then some of the anatomical ones like osteoarthritis and phlebitis, um, uh, and then the metabolic ones, diabetes, dyslipidemia, hypertension, leading to coronary artery disease. Um, stroke, and uh, idiopathic intracranial hypertension. And so as you're looking at all these complications, um, thinking about kind of where things would be beneficial to moving obesity treatment up in your algorithm instead of treating the pre-diabetes, pre-hypertension, mild dyslipidemia, and then thinking about um, the Treating the obesity um, with the delayed intervention, which then leads to actually having diabetes, hypertension, and all those others. So early intervention could have a healthier weight, a higher quality, you know, in, in reinforcing higher quality nutrition, regular phys, physical activity, and considering anti obesity medications and bariatric procedures, if appropriate, even earlier than the actual. Um, time when they have progressed to the disease. So let's talk about a a case next. Um, Nora's a uh, a 60-year-old woman with a BMI of 50. Um, Her A1c is 8.9%. Blood pressure is 138 over 89. Um, You can see her lipids there. uh, LDL cholesterol is 110, so above goal for somebody with diabetes, um her medical history includes the type 2 diabetes, hyperlipidemia, hypertension, osteoarthritis of the knees. Um, she has underwent a sleeve gastrectomy in the past and is postmenopausal, so you can see many of the complicating factors and, and risk factors with it. Currently she's on glimepiride, atorvastatin, losartin, HCTZ, gabapentin uh 600 TID for her knee pain and ibuprofen, 800 milligrams uh, BID. She works as an administrative assistant in a paperboard manufacturing company um, and is coming in to see you based on, uh, to discuss her knee pain, which is not controlled. Next uh, is the actual telehealth visit with
3: Nora. Hello, Nora. How are you? Hi, doctor. Uh, I'd be a lot better if my knees weren't killing me.
4: Oh gosh! So that's the reason for the call today. right? Tell me about it.
3: Well, um, I have talked to a surgeon about getting my knees replaced, and she says that I can't get it done until I lose weight and i I've tried so many times to lose weight, and I just i feel like I can't do it.
4: Okay, so tell me, what have you tried?
3: I have tried everything from pills to diets. I even had bariatric surgery uh, several years ago, and uh, I thought that was going to work forever. (laughs) Um, But uh, within a little longer than a year, I was right back to where I started.
4: Yes, I sense your frustration. Um, and, you know, so you know, uh, that is not the be all end all. And there are a lot of patients for whom bariatric surgery um, is not the end of the line when it comes to weight loss goals. Um, let's start with your knee pain. I am thinking that what we may need to do is a multi pronged approach. I'm thinking for the short term and to alleviate and address your knee pain, we might want to think about physical therapy. How does that sound?
3: Um, I mean, if you think it'd help, I'll I'll try it. I do. And here's why.
4: Um, With physical therapy, we would do a referral to a therapist who would Diagnose what's going on with your knees. Try and pinpoint exactly what's causing the pain. Obviously, the excess weight is not good for your joints, and that's a problem. But they can determine exactly where the stress is. Is it on your ligaments, your tendons, your cartilage, whatever? Um, they will design and monitor exercises for you. Um, this is not hardcore high-impact pounding exercises. This would be gentle stretching. It could involve swimming, elliptical, things that will get your joints moving, get you moving, and kind of begin to have you exercising in a way that's getting you moving and kind of getting your joints moving again. I'm sure you haven't been exercising because when we're in pain, we don't move. We don't exercise. Now, these are not exercises that are going to help you lose weight. So the second part of the strategy would be to maybe introduce some of the newer weight loss drugs. How do you feel about that part
3: of it? That I really have a problem with. I mean, I've tried... So many pills before i I don't have any reason to believe that 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 would help, okay, well, so you know
4: um, the newer pills and medications they're really nothing like the weight loss drugs that that people our age are used to from years ago. Um, And certainly we would uh, prescribe things that would work with what you have going on, things that would help your overall health, cholesterol, glucose, um, blood pressure, that kind of thing. Um, And these would not only help you lose weight for your goal for surgery, but they would probably help you lose more than that or the potential to lose even more than that. Um, we would do this in consultation with your orthopedic doctor, decide what they think is enough weight to allow you to get the surgery, because I know it sounds like that's really a priority for you. Um, so these things would all be done in concert and consultation, but I feel like the therapy would be important to help you get the relief early and now, and then work with the medication long-term for the weight loss goals. Um, I'm thinking maybe we try this for about a month, have you call back, see how things are going, reevaluate from there. Um, and, and having been a patient for so long, I, I can see that this is really, this is weighing on you. Um, yeah, I, I can see that you're, you're not your usually sparkly self. And you know, Nora, the thing is when you start exercising and moving, exercise is good for the mood. Um, you'll feel better. You'll probably sleep better. Um, it's just overall good for for your, your health and just your general well-being. So again, if this is something you'll consider, um, it's certainly something we can try and kind of touch base again in a month and see where we are. Is Is that appealing at all?
3: Sure. (laughs)
4: I'll try one more time. (laughs) Okay. Well, I appreciate your, I appreciate your willingness to try. Um, I'll have the nurse be in touch. We'll do a referral for the physical therapy. We'll get all the information with the orthopedic practice. Um, and then we'll, we'll, we'll reevaluate in a month and go from there. All righty. You take
3: care and we'll be in touch. You too. Thank you very much. You're so welcome. Bye bye. Bye.
1: So Amy, what are your thoughts about um, about Nora and how to best treat her, um, especially with, with respect to her cardiovascular risk?
2: Yeah, Nora is a common patient I see in my clinic. Um, I think her diabetes is obviously not at the goal we'd like it to, as well as her lipid. So I think discussing that with her in regards to her overall health and how we can improve that and her knee pain by Helping her treat her obesity um, would be a goal of my discussion.
1: Yeah, excellent. And I think uh, you made the point of well discussing her knee pain, um, which was really a, a key point because she came in for her knee pain. Um, oftentimes, people living with obesity don't want to hear, well, let's talk about your weight when they came in for their knee pain. But being sure to incorporate it in the entire picture was, was, is, is an excellent point. So um, the question from the the polling uh, was how much weight loss is needed to improve health. And like I kind of insinuated at the beginning, um, for overall health improvement, it's really not that much weight. Uh, As little as 5 to 7% we saw from the diabetes prevention program can significantly decrease the risk of diabetes. Um, Most things like non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, NASH, need at least 10%. And for, we're learning that for true cardiovascular risk reduction, you probably need closer to 15%. Um, unfortunately, these goals, although medically appropriate, are rarely what the patient is coming in uh, to, to see. Um, they want to oftentimes lose an unrealistic amount of weight and then when they're not able to get there, um, they have self-defeating failure type thoughts. Um so weight loss of five to ten percent may be disappointing to many patients. Um, but it's better for us to set small goals, help them understand and come with shared decision making that you know, a five percent goal weight, especially over the next month or even longer if necessary is a success. And then we're it's not we're going to stop if you're continuing to lose weight, but we're going to agree that you're successful with where you're at. So one way we've often used to, to think about um, kind of going through your office visit and and remembering the the key points is um, first of all to ask permission to discuss their weight. Um, and explore how ready they are for changing. So um, oftentimes people aren't really ready to discuss their weight um, and is, as you know, for both smoking cessation and other behavioral changes, if they don't want to hear it, then you're arguing with them, no matter how much you do, isn't gonna help at all. So um, asking permission and then assess the BMI um, and waist circumference, I think we should be doing it a lot more often. You know, the retired professional football player um, likely doesn't have a waist circumference that's that large um, if they're in good shape still. Um, so it could be a, a good differentiation, um, but but hard to do in the office visit. Um, and then advise that you know, even modest weight loss—five, seven, ten percent—could um, help with with decreasing weight-related comorbidities. And then again, with shared decision making, agreeing on realistic goals and changes that can happen, and then assisting the patient in identifying and addressing barriers, providing resources, and and having regular follow up. So. Going back to the stages of change, um, and I think it's good to, to review these, um, it's very rare that people go from pre-contemplation to contemplation, you know, just directly through the stages. Um, oftentimes I'll have patients who uh, I see for weight or diabetes management for months to years that remain in that contemplation stage, and then all of a sudden they came, come in you know, six months later, and they've not only gone through preparation and action, but they've now, for the last three months, maintained uh, the lower weight or a better A1C because something else happened in their life. Um, but it's a good place to, to start um, and to think about, and to think about at least trying to move the patient to the next stage um, uh, during your visit. And then at the next visit, revisit where they're at and and see where they need to be supported. So um, I really like this slide in the American Heart Association's Life's Essential Eight um, because it, it really summarizes in eight simple bullets what a healthy lifestyle and health goals are all about. So the ones on the left are the ones that we have more behavioral control over. So eating a healthy diet, being more physically active, stopping smoking, getting uh, a good nights and a healthy amount of sleep, and then those on the right are the ones that we have a little bit of control over, but but really not that much control over, and where we may need, depending our on our genetics and our environment and all additional supports with medications. So things like weight management. Managing your cholesterol, managing blood sugars, and managing blood pressure. So, why why do I include managing weight in the same category as managing cholesterol and blood pressure? Well, it's because that are those things are strongly biologically uh, regulated with us, and and so if we we think back to kind of what we were designed to do, the, what keeps us in homeostasis, um, the first thing we need is oxygen. And so if, if your blood oxygen levels go down, even a small amount, then, um, then you start breathing faster, your blood pressure goes up. All those other things happen almost immediately through neuroregulatory, um, changes, um, Now, if you think about it, we were never designed to live in an atmosphere that had too much oxygen. And so we can breathe in high levels of oxygen, and it doesn't really do much to us other than get our oxygen levels to 100% saturation. So our oxygen sensor has definitely a very strong lower limit, but really no upper limit. Um, other things we need to to regulate are, are our body temperature, um, and the body temperature, you, as you know well, um, we have both an upper limit and a lower limit. Um, have heat stroke, or you can have hypothermia and die, and and so that's also regulated, but largely by uh, neurohormonal pathways. Um, because if you're in too cold of an atmosphere for even a few uh, minutes to hours, you're going to to, to die. So oxygen seconds to a couple of minutes, temperatures, minutes to maybe hours. Um, water and salt balance is more hours to days. Um, and likewise, we have to have our sodium in a very tight range um, to, to maintain life. Um, and so the salt water balance um, it, again is neurohormonal regulation. Um, but very tightly regulated, um, uh, with an upper and lower limit. And then we get to the last one is we have to have calories to survive. Um, and so we were designed very well to, um, to when our calorie intake decreases below whatever our body thinks it should be, our set point or settling point for our weight, then many neurohormonal, um, Changes happen to push that weight back up, including decreasing your energy expenditure um, and increasing appetite in ways that are so subtle, especially over days to weeks, that you may not even realize it. So like with oxygen levels, um, there's a lower limit if you're losing weight. But uh, also like oxygen levels, we were never designed to be in an environment where food was readily available and we didn't have to perform physical activity and all the other um, processed foods and all the million other things that have been implicated with obesity, um, we don't have a, an upper limit of our, uh, of our thermometer, so to speak, for obesity. So turns in turns out that that's why we now have an obesity epidemic. Um, so... To to reinforce, lifestyle modifications are critical for overall health, um, but the goal of lifestyle up, uh, modifications really is no longer for obesity management. Um, it's very, very, very rare um, that diet and exercise has worked for anybody. You can see how fast we're increasing with obesity, um, and so uh, so definitely thinking about the next steps with it. And, and so going back to kind of that summary uh, of the pillars of obesity treatment, nutrition, physical activity, behavioral therapy are key pillars for obesity, but also for overall health. We're now in an age when pharmacotherapy and bariatric procedures, metabolic bariatric surgery, are all... Are more appropriate treatments for obesity while keeping the others for overall health. So let's look at uh, what we now have in the uh, obesity anti-obesity medication or AOM uh, spectrum of medications out there. So the oldest is um, Orlistat Um, which showed that there was about double the weight loss in the intervention trial versus the placebo and about a 10% weight loss with it. Um, Orlistat is uh, very, very poorly tolerated and very difficult to use long-term. And so, in essence, I've been doing this for 30 years and I almost never anymore use um, Orlistat. The ventramine topiramate um which uh is sold as a brand name Qsimia um had a eight percent weight loss, um but again this was in a study that placebo didn't do a whole lot, so there was only a one percent weight loss uh in the placebo group. So uh, a very good treatment does have some side effects, but um and this is after a year or more of use. Um, naltrexone, bupropion, um, sold under the trade name Contrave, uh, again, about a 6% weight loss. Uh, liraglutide at 3 milligrams and 8% weight loss. Um, and that's where we were up until a couple of years ago um, when higher dose weekly GLP-1 or GLP-1 GIP drugs like semaglutide and then tirzepatide. Um, Which is a GLP 1 GIP, um, came out. And now we're in the 15 to 20 percent range. We're closing that gap from the 5 percent, 5 to 10 percent that we can get with diet and exercise and medications to the 15 to 20 um, percent gap where a lot of people need uh, before going on to bariatric surgery. So the other good thing about these is that they definitely um, improve cardiovascular risk, um, and um, you can see on the bottom that, um, that uh, especially liraglutide, semaglutide, and tirzepatide have decreased risks uh, with um, heart failure, uh, semaglutide specifically with heart failure, major adverse cardiovascular events. And NAFLD um, with liraglutide and tirzepatide having similar things. Lifestyle modifications really have modest effects on weight. Um, and these are out at, at uh, as far as a year um, with different programs led by certified diabetes educators, peer led community programs not-for-profit, fitness-focused programs, and online personal health coaches. Um, and you could see that overall, other than the peer-led community programs, um, less than half of the people lose 5% or more weight loss of a year. And again, very few people are even happy with that amount of weight loss. Um, and that's at least what's probably needed for diabetes prevention. So in the past, though, we always said lifestyle was critical. You have to have lifestyle um, because it doubles the amount of weight loss that the medications do. Um, And this was the classic study that was always quoted by uh, Tom Wadden and colleagues um, with a drug that's no longer on the market, but Cybutramine, um, where he randomized people to either Cybutramine alone, lifestyle alone, or combined therapy. Um, and you can see, again, it, the combined doubled the amount of weight loss with it. However, now with our more potent anti-obesity medications such as um, semaglutide, and this is a combin, this is a, a slide that combines two studies. Um, the left side, the step one study is a very low intensive intensity lifestyle management medications. Uh, the same dose, you can see the same doses of semaglutide. Um, and, um, their lifestyle modification is basically what we would do in the office uh, give them recommendations for 500 calories per day deficit, at 150 minutes per week of physical activity, um, but no real close follow-up. The Step 3 study, um, again, was done by Tom Wadden, the, the world's expert in doing high-intensity lifestyle management, um, where people got semaglutide again. Uh, but they started with um, uh, a eight-week low-calorie meal replacements um, and then increased uh, uh up with that. Um, But in addition, they had 30 intensive behavioral therapy visits with a dietician over that period of time. So a lot of personal coaching and support that you would have expected a lot more weight loss. Um, But as you go across the percent who lost 5% um, or more, there was a little bit um, uh, uh, better in the placebo group. Um, but a little worse in the um, intervention group. Um, But you can go across, and the the low-intensity lifestyle did just as well as the high-intensity lifestyle um, with the drug itself. So so we're, again, now at a place where we're not as much uh, with lifestyle for weight loss, but for overall health. And so just to, to kind of, um, drive the final, drive that point home, um, lifestyle's the foundation and we can't get around it, but that's the foundation for everybody. And less than 10% of people using lifestyle alone succeed in losing 20% of their weight. So healthy behavior does not translate into weight reducing behavior in everybody. Biases among healthcare professionals can increase an avoidance of evidence based treatment. Healthcare professionals often prefer to treat obesity only with lifestyle modifications, and many PCPs exhibit biases that interfere with seeking, offering, and choosing evidence based treatments for people with obesity. Lack of knowledge of obesity management and cultural awareness is one part of that a belief that obesity is something that the patients did to themselves, have no self-control or don't care about their weight, and a belief that weight loss efforts are ultimately futile, so why even start? Because of these things, people with obesity may delay or avoid care or switch doctors because they've experienced being stigmatized and have had poor communication with their healthcare providers. I'll, I'll ask Amy, what do you think? Did Dr. West exhibit a bias to or appear to be a biased in her discussion with Nora?
2: Yeah, I think Dr. West, she did an okay job. Um, I think it could have been a bit better. She tended to focus on what she wanted to talk about and had a plan in mind, it seemed, and did not really address all of Nora's concerns related to her pain and her knees um, that she could have. So I think that that could have been better. Um, how could Dr. West improve her communication with Nora and then provide more empathetic care? I think one thing she could have done was ask more open-ended questions with Nora, um, given her a chance to reflect a little bit on, on um, her history with her pain and also her weight, um, and how she could use that uh, to, that information to help guide the discussion towards anti-obesity medications with Nora.
1: Excellent. So I think I'll turn it over to you from here to to take us on to the next part.
2: That's great. Thank you so much. So um, as Dr. Donahue uh, clearly uh, discussed, obesity is a very complex chronic disease and has many drivers. Uh, We often focus on behavioral, the diet, the Um, inactivity or activity levels. But um, I think as physicians and providers, we must also take a look at patients' mood, emotional health, and sleep. If someone's not sleeping and if their mood is not good, they are not gonna really be able to lose weight and keep it off long-term. There's genetic drivers of obesity. Um, Those are very strong, in fact, and also epigenetic, how someone's genes interact with their environment and turn them on and off um, that regulate someone's weight. There's environmental, um, someone's socioeconomic status, cultural beliefs, the built environment, how are they able to you know, get around, are they physically active? Um, and there's physiologic, uh, there's hormones, which we'll talk about, gastrointestinal peptides, homeostatic pathways, which we touched on, um, and also looking at someone's medication list for weight, um, gaining or causing medications, as well as other health conditions, um, such as diabetes that might uh, promote weight gain, and we see that in the case with Nora. So here, just is this uh, picture is supposed to show us that um, weight is generally not under our control, and there's a lot of hormones uh, involved throughout our entire body that interact with our brain centers and tell us whether we're hungry or full you know our even our adipose tissue is secreting leptin and um our stomach is secreting ghrelin and these these hormones are working to to tell us as well as many others including GLP1 and GIP from the intestines whether we're hungry or full and so um i think it's important to remind patients and we and i do that often using the pharmacotherapy that we have um how these drugs work and how they can help our uh, involuntary you know r- hormone release I really like this, and discussing this with patients. Our homeostatic regulation of our body. Um, our body likes to be a certain weight, and and when we vary from that weight, we have compensatory mechanisms to try to get our body back at that weight. Unfortunately, um, as our body changes, as we gain and lose weight, that set point changes. And so I tell my patients, you know, as they are going to lose weight, they're um, their metabolism slows down, their hunger hormone goes up, and their fullness hormone goes down. And so these mechanisms are, you know, ca- counterproductive to all their weight loss efforts. And it's important that they understand that, you know, that's not under their control. And that's how, you know, exercise and being more physically active and eating a healthy diet can help, but also how pharmacotherapy can play a really important role to, to make this easier for them. Many people have questions about diet and what they should and should not be eating. I like to use this plate method. I show this to my patients, what a healthy plate looks like. Yeah, I'm getting a, a plant-based diet or Mediterranean diet with fruits and vegetables filling up the plate. Healthy carbohydrates and healthy leaner proteins, chicken, turkey, fish, plant protein um, are good examples. And so giving patients examples is very helpful when you tell them to eat healthy. I like to look at the um, calorie density theory of food. What does 500 calories look like in their stomach? I think this is also nice to share with patients Um, and showing them that you want to fill up on foods that are bulky and less calories that will keep them full longer and less processed foods are ideal. So here is uh, several FDA medications that are improved um, for weight loss. And we see here we have naltrexone, bupropion, working at um, the dopamine norepinephrine pathway um, and mu opioid receptor pathway. We have loraglutide, semaglutide, terzepatide, which are in that GLP-1 um, extra gastrointestinal intestinal peptide hormones working both at our brain and our gut and our adipose tissue. Phentermine and topiramate, very commonly used, is a dopamine norepinephrine receptor as well as GABA, and fentermine alone can be used for weight loss. Hydrogel is not a medication, but it's a device, and it um, fills up our stomach and can actually inter- um, change some of our hormone level levels. And Orlistat is a lipase inhibitor that works in the gut. And I, th- I think it's important to remember that when discussing weight with your patients, as well as uh, taking account into past experience that they have. Many times in my office, um, I hear both people of color and people with obesity report feeling Dismissed by other healthcare providers, disregarded, um, and that their, their issues weren't necessarily addressed in the visit. And oftentimes what I'm hearing is that, uh, they're told to lose weight. Even if the problem they're going in with is not, um, not something they consider to be affected by their weight. And so I think it's important to tell them, tell our patients that losing weight is probably going to help a lot of problems, um, depending on, you know, you know their diabetes, their blood pressure, uh, their mood potentially, but um, it doesn't treat all their problems. And I think setting up that expectation early can be very helpful for patients. I guess Dr. Donahue, what's your experience with uh, patients in clinic uh, over the years? Have you seen a change in in, in stigma that you've heard patients uh, express to you, or have there been any improvements?
1: Perhaps some. That's a, that's a great question. Um, I, I, think, uh, I think people are slowly coming around to see this as a biologically controlled disease rather than a behavior or a failure from the patient's side. Um, uh, there's still some resistance, but, but I, I do think I have seen uh, decreases in, in stigma in a lot of places
2: that's great to hear So let's revisit the case of Nora. You see here so Nora um, her BMI was fifty her A1 c was eight point nine she is sixty year old female that's postmenopausal, um, which is you know something I think that would be nice to discuss with her during the um, during her visit how that's impacting her weight. Um, she's on medications that uh, glimepiride that causes weight gain, I that think that's important to, or that's associated with weight gain would be important to mention um, as you review her medications as well as gabapentin, which um, you can also discuss with her. Menopause is uh, something else I commonly uh, see patients about in my clinic when we're discussing their weight and when they, dis- they start to notice weight gain. Um, and many women feel they haven't changed anything as they've gotten older, but, um, but their weight has continued to, or has increased. And so the data shows that in late menopause and postmenopause, we have this decrease in estrogen and increase in FSH, and our body, and the body composition changes. So there's increase in abdominal fat mass and a a decrease in fat-free lean mass, and also a decrease in energy expenditure in sleep. And when I'm discussing homeostasis with these patients, um, I think that plays a very important role because we're talking about metabolism and energy expenditure um, going down, especially as they lose weight, and also now that they're in this late perimenopausal or postmenopausal stage that's not helping their metabolism um, and other cardiovascular risk factors as as they... go through menopause. Dr. Don, do you have any other thoughts about Nora?
1: No, I think the the point about her being postmenopausal just really um, exacerbates the, the challenges. And, um, and um, in postmenopausal women especially, um, their percentage of body fat versus lean mass tends to be higher for any given BMI. And so that that makes it even worse.
2: Mm -hmm. So did Dr. West engage into shared decision-making with Nora before concluding the visit? How effective was it? Dr. Donahue?
1: So she did, but it was just kind of right there at the end. It would have been better to, I think, have a, a, a bigger discussion. Talk more about her knee pain and all, like like you had mentioned earlier on and throughout the visit, and and how all those would be impacted with it.
2: So it's important that we address. Obesity. Before we uh, uh, before we get to the downstream effects of obesity, and this is what Dr. Don who touched on earlier, having a weight centric approach, an upstream intervention before we get to sleep apnea, NASH, osteoarthritis, hyperlipidemia, hyperdension, diabetes, and other macro and mi- microvascular complications that are more long term with those conditions, we really, really, really should focus on treating obesity earlier. Musculoskeletal pain is very common um, in people with obesity. Uh, Specifically, you know, osteoarthritis—the larger joints, the knees—you see here—that that that is the most common. But also the smaller joints. And and, you know, obesity is an inflammatory condition. Our adipocytes secretes inflammatory cytokines, and so um, the fact that our we you know patients often will discuss their joint pain. Um, is is pretty common and not surprising. Depression and obesity also have shared biodirectional biologic mechanisms. Similar depression and and type two diabetes do as well. Um, Patients uh, with obesity and depression often um, could have something called adverse childhood events, abuse, abandonment, things like abuse, abandonment, neglect, or divorce, the death of a parent in their early childhood, which which brings in early life stressors. There's chronic stress that plays a role, um, different inflama- inflammation or inflammatory states from infection or genetics, um, and also lifestyles such as poor diet can increase um, uh, insulin resistance and uh, sedentary lifestyles, all contributing to altered brain activity, altered mood, and depression. And so it's a bidirectional mechanism with obesity and depression. And so it's important when we're, when we're talking to patients about their obesity to ask them, you know, and to reassess commonly how their mood is. And can anti-obesity medications be used in people with obesity and depression? The answer is yes. Um, anti-obesity, medicines, uh, anti-obesity medications may reduce weight and depression and anxiety and stress and, and improve uh, metabolic diseases for patients, but it doesn't help all patients um, with depression. And I think that's important to remember that there are certain medications that we need to be more mindful of um, when we're using with people with depression and to keep that in mind and to, and to assess them as they're going through their weight loss journey. I'm going to pass it back to Dr. Donahue.
1: Thanks, Amy. Um, so... Let's look at uh, uh, Nora one more time. Um, again, uh, 60-year-old, fi- uh, BMI of 50, but specifically maybe focusing on her diabetes um, and other medications, uh, as we've talked about a couple of times. A1C is above goal, LDL is above goal, um, and on um, uh as well as gabapentin, Um uh, that, that might be something to, to think about um, as, looking, as we look forward. When thinking about diabetes and other medications associated with weight gain, um, especially with the new paradigm of anti-obesity and anti-diabetes medications that we have that can actually um, help with weight loss Um, I think we can really now treat the whole condition um, and both of the very closely interrelated diseases of obesity and diabetes with our newer medications. And this is just to show you kind of where the GLP-1 type drugs are, um, uh, both the long-acting and then the short-acting. And in between are the SGLT-2 inhibitors which do are significant help for weight loss, um, but also have other beneficial effects in people with diabetes. Um, and then the older medications, the um, and specifically the glimepiride that, that she was taking and where that's at. So other medications that can cause weight gain, a lot of the psychotropic agents, um, some of the antidepressants, and um, uh, Although antihypertensive agents are associated with some increase in weight gain, it's oftentimes difficult to, to tease out how much and to, um, and to, to make those changes. Um, and then the anti-seizure ones, and gabapentin is one um, very big actor in this with weight gain and um, also is not really that good for osteoarthritis pain. So the science of obesity treatment and anti-obesity medications has evolved over time. Um, in the past, there were initial biases against uh, pharmacotherapy to treat other metabolic diseases, both from the physician side and from the patient's side, um, biases against insulin and glomiparide and other drugs because of weight gain or they were going to die. Um, and now we've got a good armamentarium. We're in that same place now with anti-obesity medications. Um, in the past, we didn't have very effective ones. Um, they had a lot of side effects, like Orlistat, um with Nora's uh, problems, and there were um, not as effective like she had with lorcaserin. We're now in a new time and a new era where we can actually treat obesity um, like we can treat other metabolic diseases. Um, so... Like treating diabetes or hypertension or dyslipidemia, unless something pretty dramatically happens, treating obesity is the same way because it's the same neurohormonal regulations that Dr. Shear went over. So, um, the, uh, this was a study with semaglutide to show that, um, once you stop the medication after, uh, being on it for a year, the weight tends to, the weight does come back up. Um so it's not that it changes anything in the brain long term which is a good thing but it uh, uh but it does um have an effect while you're on it. Um so just kind of a uh an algorithm uh to think about um ways to uh to put this all together um uh somebody with obesity bmi over 30 or over 27 with uh, at least one weight-related comorbidity, um, always lifestyle modifications at the beginning, and as much as you can, decreasing weight-inducing medications. Um, but then if they have comorbidities, there are certain things you may want to uh, consider. For example, if they have cardiovascular disease, uh, avoiding fentramine topiramate, um, If they um, are thinking of pregnancy, which is not on here, remembering that topiramate is a teratogenic medication, and so uh, being sure that they're off that well before they get pregnant. Um, With depression, um, some of these are being associated with worsening in mood. Um, So like with everything, I think monitoring um, depression, mood, um, but as, as Dr. Scheer showed, they've been definitely safely used. Um, uh, medullary thyroid cancer, I'd still probably avoid um, the GLP-1, GL, GIP-GLP, those class of drugs, although it's a very theoretical risk with it. Um, uh, ones specifically with uh, NAFLD, NASH, that have shown to be effective are the the GLP 1 type drugs, um, sleep apnea, it's all about weight loss, um, opioid use or history of seizures, avoiding the naltrexone bupropion, and uncontrolled, hy- uncontrolled hypertension, um, avoiding the phentermine type. Uh, so, setting realistic expectations for weight loss in people with type 2 diabetes. And if, if you remember back to some of the other studies we've shown shown previously, um, these numbers aren't quite as good as what we saw in people with obesity without diabetes. Um, but they're still excellent amounts of weight loss um, and also associated with excellent control in 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 blood sugar. So um so uh kind of separating those two pieces out but knowing your patients who live with diabetes and obesity may not quite get the same weight loss amount as those who um, don't have diabetes. And the same holds true for bariatric surgery. So we're at that new place where we can address obesity through a wide variety of medications uh, especially around these new classes of drugs, the GLP-1, the GIP-GLP-1 terzepatide, um, the the GIP with semaglutide. This is with terzepatide, the dual agonist, um, and how much weight loss. And you can see this is another way um, to compare with diabetes um, versus without diabetes, that they're getting about a 20% weight loss at the highest dose. Um, and, um, and then finally getting through that uh, virtuous cycle, switching it from a vicious cycle to a virtuous cycle where we set achievable, realistic weight loss goals, develop a manageable plan to reach the goals, um, and then continue to work through that. This is a lifelong um, adventure and, uh, for me and my patients anyway, I let them know I'm with them long term. Um, sometimes they may have to go off the medication or the weight may come back or, but I'm always there. I'm, I'm not going to judge them. I'm not going to say you have to lose this much weight or, or don't come back. It's, it's all an adventure, uh, a path that we follow together, um, and looking at, at options and optimizing healthy lifestyle behaviors. And the last couple of slides is, like with everything, weight loss uh, with bariatric surgery um, varies quite a bit. It's about uh, 38% or so, 40% um, on average for the roux um a little bit less, so the 20 to 30% for the sleeve. Um, and again, similar to what we saw with the medications. And yes, it's possible to use um, medications after surgery. So... Um, if needed. So Amy, kind of in the last uh, few seconds, any other things that you would offer Nora at this time?
2: Yeah, I think discussing um, medication options, you know, going through her medications first of all and discussing maybe we can change some that cause weight gain and then also reviewing what options she has with her comorbidities that would help Um, improve her weight, and also uh, take some strain off her knees, I think would be very helpful.
1: Good. Good. And so our final key takeaways. um, Ask permission before discussing a patient's weight and always use respectful, non-judgmental language with people-first terminology. Counsel patients about the rationale for long-term obesity management is it is a chronic disease with a complex multifactorial pathophysiology requires monitoring and treatment modifications over time. Um, understand that their behaviors are foundational to good health, but lifestyle modifications is often insufficient for effective weight loss. And discuss realistic goals and expectations with the patients when initi- initiating the anti-obesity medications. And finally, address barriers to long-term weight management, such as in postmenopausal women, people with uh, depression, people who've had bariatric surgery and have regained some of the weight or haven't reached their ideal weight loss goals, um, and other personal challenges the patients may face. That ends our presentation for today. I'd like to thank my co-chair, Dr. Scheer, for an excellent discussion.
2: Thank you, Dr. Donahue. It's been a pleasure.
1: I hope you found the activity informative. Please check out the downloadable practice aids. They've been designed to be useful in all types of primary care practices and might save you some time. Thank you again for participating.
0: This activity is certified by the University of Florida College of Medicine for Physicians and by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education for Nurses and Physician Assistants. This activity is developed in collaboration with our educational partners, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education, and the Healthcare Theater from the University of Delaware. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash pzm860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Lilly.